Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Announcement time. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens, the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess, and I'm really proud of it. It's out in Europe in ebook in March 2022 and a couple months later stateside. Right now, pre-orders are my love language. And I'd really appreciate if you click on one of the links in the show notes to make sure you get the earliest copy of Chess Queens. You can also go to jennifershahadi.com slash books for those links. I really think poker players are going to enjoy this book as it captures the intensity of a high level of competition, the triumphs, devastating losses, and chronicles some of my earliest gaming days. The Grid is a free show, and by supporting my work, you help this entire operation going. And speaking of which, with a big deadline behind me, I'll be upping the grid frequency. And with that in mind, let's get in to this episode's special guest, who also has quite a bit to say about pre-orders, book promotion, and SEO, as well as a great poker hand. Today, my guest is Dara O'Carney. He is a professional poker player and author of now three best-selling poker books including Poker Satellite Strategy, PKO Poker Strategy, and now Endgame Poker Strategy, the ICM book. They are all co-authored with Barry Carter. He's also the host of the award-winning podcast, The Chip Race. They even had me on a couple of times, despite their co-host's ardent objections. And speaking of David Lavin, Dara's hand today features his nemesis, I mean co-host, of The Chip Race long before they became the dynamic Dara-David duo. And Dara's holding was King Six Suited, which as we'll discover, is a really perfect hand for him to discuss on the grid, not only because it was against Lappin, but also because it ties in to so many concepts in his book, especially his most recent book, Endgame Poker Strategy. Dara, thank you so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure, Jennifer. Delighted. I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. And this hand is fantastic. It was from a long time ago, a decade ago, in fact. Can you tell us a little bit about where it took place and where you were in your poker career at the time. Yeah, it's basically from 10 years ago. Um, and the reason I can place it so exactly is Lappin had been living in America and was just an online player. Uh, the US had obviously decided it had enough of him and sent him back to us. Um, so he showed up in Ireland. He very quickly became the most unpopular man in the Irish poker scene. Um, so I felt like somebody had to befriend him and take them under his wing. At this point in my career, I was already probably one of the better known players in Ireland. I, I was a sponsored pro. So I 
I was probably a good candidate to try and take the edges off this this new raw newcomer. But joking aside, I did enjoy David's company right from the very start, even though he was very prickly back then and constantly in arguments and fights, he was also very entertaining. So we did kind of start hanging out together and going to tournaments together. And in this case, we ended up at the same table in a tournament in Dublin. The concept was fairly novel for Ireland, at least. It was a, the mini, they called it the mini WSOP. So it had the same structure as the WSOP main event, same stack sizes, blind levels, et cetera. The only difference is obviously the blind levels were shorter because they had to get it done in a shorter time. So I think it was like 30 minute blinds or whatever. But this hand was from, from quite early in the tournament when we were still very deep, um, a bit over 100 big blinds effective. David was doing his usual chatty, chatty act at the table, um, driving everybody mad while thinking he was, this, he was the life and soul of the party. I was staying quiet uh, and just playing my game. And um, yeah, this, this hand was interesting because it was very different from, what, from the way I would have normally played at the time. But it was down to very much down to sort of Lappin's view of me at the time as, as an old mate. You said that you had kind of befriended him very quickly. Were you actually staying together at this particular tournament? Well, this tournament was in Dublin, so we were both traveling from our own houses, so we weren't staying together. But yeah, at this point in our careers, whenever we traveled abroad, we were already sharing accommodation and and hanging out. So we knew each other very well. I don't think we fully understood each other's games really, really well at this point because we hadn't talked enough hands or, or, or played enough against each other. We had played a few times online and Generally, the way it played out was Lappin just went absolutely crazy. He played the way sort of you were supposed to play against Nitz back in the day, which was just like apply a lot of pressure. I do remember we played one cash hand online, 400 big blinds deep, where he got ace queen in against my aces because he thought I would fold to his seven bet. So this was kind of the dynamic we had between us at the time. He was sort of showing off and he had a fairly static image of me as a tighter, older player. So in the Irish poker scene in those days... Was there a lot of drinking at the table? Like, yeah, I just think of it as like this big party that you must just be downing beers and everybody's like joking, like it's kind of like a, a bar scene at a poker tournament. Is that accurate or is this kind of like so early in the morning that not so much? No, that's very accurate. People went to tournaments for social things. Like to explain, in Ireland, we don't have actual casinos. So most poker tournaments take place in hotels. Um, so obviously drink is freely available. Uh, even in car clubs, this tournament was in a car club, but even in car clubs, um, there tends to be drinking. It's a very different scene from, say, the UK, uh, where almost all the tournaments are in casinos. And it is very social. People go there to drink, have fun. And yeah, I mean, I think the famous Norman Chad line once was that there's more drink spilled on the carpet at a tournament in Ireland than consumed at the entire WSOP. And that's fairly accurate. <laughs> that, that is a good Norman Jad line. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad I guessed correctly about that much. But uh, let's get into the hand because in this particular one, you were playing, I guess, at a full table um, kind of early in the tournament, as you mentioned, 100 big lines plus deep. Were you guys in good moods at this point, both of you around starting stack or did somebody massively outchip the other? No, we were both around starting stack, um, which I think at this stage was 100 big blinds or just over 100 big blinds. I think we'd both chipped up slightly uh, in very different ways. Lappin was playing a lot of hands and doing his usual uh, chatty act, as I said. I was playing a lot tighter, but I had won a few pots that I had been in. So I think we'd both chipped up a little um, past the 100 big blinds, but we had very similar stacks and we were, yeah, the, the hand was deep. Given the way he was sort of like trying to run over the table, I had kind of decided that I was going to widen my three betting ranges considerably against him. Also, I did have the impression that he saw me as very tight. So I felt that that was going to work more often. 
It's kind of funny when you think back to hands played 10 years ago, because you have to sort of disengage from the current mindset that you have and all the stuff that you know, and try and remember what you knew back then. So I think, yeah, I think my thought process was just simply like, he's playing far too many hands. I'm going to start three betting more. And that's, that's what played into this hand. Break down the action. So he opened an early position, right? Under the gun one. And you were in the bottom. He opens early position under the gun one, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And it folded to me on the button. And I remember having decided before I looked at my cards that I was going to three bet anything reasonable. Um, so I looked down at King six suited and decided this is this is a reasonable hand. At the time, I, I honestly don't know how much I knew about sort of polarized three betting ranges and blockers and all that stuff. I think I probably had some awareness of it. Sometimes I think I don't give early Doke enough credit. And then I go back and I read a 12-year-old blog and I'm quite surprised at what I did actually know back then. So I think I did think, okay, the King's a good card to have. I'm suited. We're deep. This is a playable hand. Doesn't play great as a call. Let's three bet it and, 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 and hope this monkey folds. Right. But he didn't. He called, right? And then you got a flop with Ace-Jack-10. What were the suits on the flop? It was the Ace of Diamonds, which was kind of crucial because that was my suit. Um, mm-hmm. So Ace-Jack-10 rainbow and the Ace is the diamond and I had the King-Six of Diamonds. So that obviously rules out a lot of his uh, flush draws. When you're, particularly when you're deep, you're worried about domination more. And you know when you have a suited king, the prospect of running into the suited ace is, is more significant than if, you're, if, if you were shallower. So I think I was quite relieved that I saw the ace of diamonds. So I, I knew I was drawing to the nuts in two ways. If I hit a queen, I have the nut straight. And if I go runner, runner, diamond, I have the nut flush. But I also know he can't have the ace of diamonds. So that reduces a lot of his options as well. Um, not just in the sense that he can't have the the nut flush if it comes or the nut flush draw, but he also can't have the perfect bluffing card. The ace of diamonds on board and I had the king of diamonds. It seemed like a good spot to start applying pressure. Do you remember what your sizing was back in those days? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm almost ashamed to admit it now because my sizing was terrible. Um, I just decided I'm going to try and push him around here. So I went for two thirds pot, which um, really shouldn't be a thing on this board, as I'm aware now. But at the time, I think my thinking would be just I wanted to maximize fold equity. He usually doesn't have a hand. It doesn't really bear up to modern scrutiny because like his calling range should be relatively inelastic, irrespective of my size. Whether I go small or big here, he's going to continue with roughly the same hands. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to go big here. Also, I think this is a very good board for me. I should just be range betting. Generally, when you're range betting, you want to go smaller size. Plus it's a three bet pot, which again, I don't think I knew that back then. I think I just thought two thirds pot, yeah. Let's bet that and he'll probably fold. Right, right. So that was your that was your philosophy at the time. And you know, you're pretty deep. So you figured you need to bet big. It's kind of logical. Now, I know that you ran this hand recently on Pio in preparation for this podcast. And which sizes did you use in that simulation? I used the size I, I used. I used a bigger size just in case. Sometimes I'm surprised mm-hmm. that it could be a thing. And I used a small size as well. So I, I gave it three sizes, small, the kind of medium to big size I used and overbet. And um, not too surprisingly found that the only thing the solver wanted to do was to use the small sizing. The solver wasn't doing very much checking behind on this board at all. It was kind of going ahead and range betting. But actually, this specific holding was one of the hands that it checks the most frequently, which kind of makes sense because, you know, we have weak, weak showdown, weak draw. Uh, we definitely don't want to get check raised. I think against Lappin at the time, it's still better to go ahead and bet because he played. He didn't play it with very many check raises. I wasn't expecting to get ever get check raised here. So I think if I know a lot for that, then we would just go ahead and bet 100%. But I think 
yeah, I mean, the seller pretty much said like, your sizing sucks, mate, just use a small size. Well, that's nice to hear though, because just to look on the positive side, if you ran this sim and it was like, bet the big size 10% of the time, you almost kind of want to rerun it because the data then becomes very confusing, right? Yeah. Anyway, you mentioned that King Six Suited though was actually one of the few hands they wanted to check some of the time. What do you mean by some of the time? Like 20%, 30%? 20%. And, and specifically King Six of Diamonds, that, that was the one. Like with, with the other King Sixes, it's happier to go ahead and bet because it doesn't mind getting check raised so much. But King Six of Diamonds, it's a gross hand to f- have to face a check raise with because we are drawing to the nuts in two ways. But at the same time, we only have like two weak draws, runner, runner, flush and gut shot. It makes logical sense to me that this would be one of the hands that we would check. I think in practice, I'd still just range bet this board if we were playing the hand today and bet, bet 100% at the small size. I think it's interesting philosophically when you run really old hands, okay, 10 years, it's not that old, but pretty old hands into modern solver software because you're kind of creating this melange of the post-flop being solver approved, but then the pre-flop ranges, you are actually putting what you guys would do in practice, not in theory, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the heartening thing for me when I looked, I did look at the Monk ranges for this as well, for this spot, and my, my hand preflop mixes. It works fine as a flat, which I wouldn't have known at the time. I would have thought it was actually a bad flat. It also works as a three bet. So this specific holding is a mix. Um, I certainly didn't know that at the time, that we often use these weaker suited kings as, as our light three bets. But I think I was aware. I, I, I do remember having a discussion with somebody back around the time we were talking about ace blockers and light three betting and four betting ranges. And I expressed the opinion that the suited kings were probably underrated because they didn't block the light part of the other player's range. So like if they're using hands like ace four suited and ace five suited as their light four bets, let's say, we're not blocking those. So that's kind of good. But yeah, certainly I wouldn't have been too sophisticated. On the, on the chip race, we have done a lot of these old hands. Like we've done analysis of the famous moneymaker Farah hand. We did an, an old hand with Berkey a while back. And Berkey actually made the point constantly that like, I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know that at the time. I would, do, I would do this differently now because I know that stuff. It's always tricky when you're looking back at old hands because you can be overly harsh on people because now we have the solvers and the solvers tell us what to do. But back then we didn't. And we were, we, we were working off our sort of our own intuition. And that kind of plays into this hand as well, I think. So you're saying that if you hadn't have three bet this, you would have thought it was a bad flat. So if you weren't three betting it, you probably would have just folded it. Correct. Yeah. I would have been mixing three bets and folds, um, which is definitely too tight. And we kind of know that nowadays. Um, I think Lappin even said it recently on, in, in one of his interviews that that was one of the shocks to him when he started studying GTO ranges that the the suited kings often make good flats. I think that is something which is not intuitive to a lot of people. Or just how widely you're supposed to flat from the button, period, even from early position. Like, I found that pretty surprising. Yeah. Like, I would have thought before seeing some of those simulations, I would have thought it was like some of these flats were kind of fishy. That was uh, interesting to see. But as it turns out, king six suited turned into your three betting range in this hand. You had ace jack 10 with the ace of diamonds. You had the king six of diamonds. And Lappin called your C-bet. And uh, no table talk during the hand. Is he more of like a talker after the fact? Or was he talking to you a little bit? This isn't true anymore. So I guess I can say it. At the time, he definitely had some verbal tells. He Mm. was very, very chatty when he had it. And he tended to just clam up when he had a difficult spot, um, which is a normal human reaction of like, you don't want to give anything away. So he, he, he was very, very quiet. So my interpretation of that at the time was like, I mean, he doesn't have nothing because he's called it pretty big bet, but he's not thrilled about the situation either. 
I certainly was quite surprised when I saw his hand at the end that it was as strong as it was. At the time, I thought he probably has a weak suited ace that he's peeled with or something like that. Or maybe he has something like King 10, King Jack, Gutter and, and Weakish Pair, which he's hanging on with as well. That's kind of how I would have ranged him at the time, based not just on the, on, on the betting action, but sort of the, the lack of chattiness. Shocking, shocking. And then on the turn, you got a flush draw with a, a seven of diamonds on the turn. And at this point, he checked again to you. And what did you do? I mean, obviously, when I bet the flop, I'm hoping he folds. Um, but if he doesn't fold, I'm hoping to, I'm, I'm really hoping to hit the queen, obviously. But the next best card is a diamond. And I did have a very um, sort of simplistic approach to, to barreling back then, which was if I, t- if I picked up any additional equity, I, I barreled, irrespective of how good or bad the card is for my range. Now, I don't think this is actually a good card for my range at all, but I don't think I would have thought about that at the time. I would have just simply thought, oh, I have a flush draw now. I, I, I can keep betting. So I ended up betting uh, one third pot, which again, I think is a terrible size. <laughs> I'm not sure what I was trying to achieve because once he's hung on on the flop, like he doesn't have nothing. Like he might have the type of marginal hands I talked about, but this bet size doesn't even put them under too much pressure, I don't think. So I think if I was going to bet, I should have bet bigger, but I think I probably should just have checked. I certainly don't want to get check raised now because of my additional equity. Yeah, I just don't really see what this bet size achieves. I think back at the time I was kind of just hoping he'd fold without thinking what hands would actually fold. I did actually look at this in the solver as well, and the solver just pure checks behind, which makes sense, obviously. That's interesting that one of the concepts that people used to hold so dear that you should barrel with equity um, doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not true. So it's one of those aphorisms that is only useful maybe for new players. What would you say? I think you have to zoom out and just think about your overall range and just realize that this is not a good card for me. Like I don't yeah. have eight men here. I probably don't have pocket sevens. Yeah, this, this card is just a much better card for him. So because of that, I should be checking. The fact that I do have one of my better betting candidates doesn't override that. You know, when we all started 13, 14 years ago, we didn't really have a clue what we were doing. We were just sort of making random moves. We were deciding, okay, I'm going to bluff this hand because it feels like it's time to bluff. And then we sort of became aware of, you know, what types of hands we should be bluffing with blockers and, um, and backdoors and equity and all that sort of stuff. But we probably oversimplified the heuristic as well. And it was, it, it was literally just the case if you said that when you picked up equity, you kept barreling even if that meant you were betting far too much, uh, too many weekends, you, didn't, you weren't really thinking about your overall range and balance. Yeah, that was very much the thing, in fact. That's exactly how I would have thought in game. It's just like, well, I have, I have more equity now, um, so let's bet again. I think I also sized it, so I left roughly a pot-sized chub behind, thinking, well, if I hit, I want to get the maximum. And if I don't hit, I want to apply the maximum pressure. So that kind of went to the sizing too. But I think... Essentially, I've got two streets wrong. <laughs> I should have bet a smaller on the flop. And because of that, the pot is too big now. And in some ways, I'm putting the brakes on at the wrong time. I mean, I should be putting the brakes on anymore. I should, I should be putting the brakes on even more in the sense that I should really just be checking here now. But at the time that you played the hand, maybe it was fantastic because your whole philosophy of shoving a brick river. And, you know, we never talked about the three bet sizing, but at this time, it, the pot is big enough that you have just a pot size bet behind on the river. That seemed like it's a very sensible, what we would now call exploit, but really, really smart strategy. I think it's a very good exploit against Lappin at the time, for sure. Because I think when I do shove River, he's almost always folding. I think his entire calling range might be king-queen and nothing else. Like, And this hand does bear it out. Um, we won't reveal his hand yet, but I think 
This is a spot where you can sort of diverge because if you're setting up a situation where the other player is going to fold almost their entire range on the river, then that's actually good for you because you're, you're getting more money into the pot right now and you're going to win a bigger pot when you do bluff and when you do shove. So that's certainly the justification looking back for the way I played the hand. Yeah, and the river did come a brick. And at that point, you shove one check two. And now that there's just a decision for Lappin, no more action left in the hand, did he have something to say now? Did he try to like yeah. get some tells from you? He got very chatty now because obviously he's not worried about giving away any information now. And he made it clear he had a very difficult decision. And he said something like, I have a much stronger hand than you can possibly imagine. And I just sat there, didn't react. And, and then he started saying like, I don't think you ever bluff here. I just can't imagine you would bluff at this point. And he continued in that line of thought for a while. Um, I didn't say anything back to him at any point. I just stared at the table, basically. And he tanked for quite a long time, maybe eight minutes, something like that. And he was constantly talking. He kept starting back to these two points. I have a much stronger hand than you think but I don't think you're ever bluffing here. And it, it was like he was trying to debate in his mind whether he could actually call or not. Um, sometimes when people do that, it means they're going to call, but because they've taken so long, they think that if it's a bad call, at least people will think, oh, well, he nearly folded and that makes him less of a donkey. Maybe there was a bit of that going on, but he, he, he was genuinely tortured by the decision and he thought process out loud. And eventually he said, yeah, you just, you, you're just never bluffing here. And he flipped over pocket tens for a set of tens and folded. And I was obviously extremely relieved. And he said, go on, you're never bluffing there. Show me what you had. It had to be king, queen. And I said, do you really want to see it? I generally don't show cards ever at the table, but this seemed like a good opportunity just to annoy him, <laughs> get into his head. I mean, on one level, you could say, I guess he goaded me into showing, but it was also fun just to flip over the king six suited and, and completely mess with his mind. And also obviously the table. <laughs> Just saw that he folded a set. So um, that was pretty funny. He was he was so steamed up that he jumped out of his seat and he stormed over to the bloggers. And I could hear him in his loud voice saying, oh, Carney's lost his mind. He's clearly been drinking. And uh, he sort of walked around for a while before he came back and sat down. Not a word. He didn't say a word to me for about 30 minutes. Clearly, he was very annoyed with me. So, yeah, it was funny aftermath. And what do you think about his fault? Like, how bad is it? This is the interesting thing. This was the street I was most interested in because yeah. before I ran this hand last night in preparation for this, I was pretty sure I got the bet sizing wrong on the on the flop and I mm -hmm. thought I shouldn't bet the turn. But I really wasn't sure about his river, what his river calling frequency is supposed to be. Now, against somebody who's playing balanced, let's say, who isn't over bluffing or under bluffing, he's supposed to call. But the interesting thing is a call really doesn't make very much at all. Depending on the suits, I don't remember whether he had the 10 or diamonds or not. And that's quite an important card. But depending on the suit, he's making somewhere between one and six big blinds on the call in a 200 big blind pot, which really isn't very much at all. So actually, I don't mind his fold. And particularly against somebody he perceived as under bluffing. Now, in reality, I think I was over bluffing because when I look at my play, the solver does shove 33% of the time, but I was shoving 100%. <laughs> There's no question. I was never checking this hand behind. So I think in this specific spot, I'm over bluffing or I was over bluffing back in the day. But his perception of me was that I was under bluffing. And given that perception, I think actually his fold is fine. Like he's better off calling with a hand like, say, ace king or ace queen that blocks king queen than, than tens, which doesn't really block anything I'm repping. It's quite funny looking back at the hand. Like at the time, the hand sort of was talked about a lot in Irish poker circles. And the general perception was I played the hand amazingly and he played the hand like an absolute donkey. But actually, when we look back, he played his hand fine. 
I think he played his hand very well, particularly based on his perception against me. I just sort of like overaggressed and overstepped. So I didn't actually play the hand that well. But, you know, people were very results based back then. I won a very big pot with King High. So I must have played the hand brilliantly. And that was kind of the way people thought back then. But in reality, I didn't play the hand all that well. And he played his hand pretty well. I'm kind of disappointed to find out he played his hand so well in retrospect, actually. It would have been much funnier if he had, if this is just a slam dunk plus 30 big blind call. But it turns out it's not. To give him his credit, he was a very good player at this point in his career. He was a very solid winning online player in 45 mans and full tilt mostly. He had very good, he had very good awareness of ICM and all that sort of stuff. So he was definitely miles ahead of the curve back then. Much better player than most people thought. And where did it all go wrong? Seriously, I can see why this was a tough decision for him at the time. It's one of those cases that because he, in inverted commas, got it wrong, everybody thinks he played terribly. But, you know, on another day, I'm sitting there with King-Queen and everybody goes like, it was absolutely obvious he had King-Queen. Everybody else at the table knew he had King-Queen. It's very hard not to be results-based. And I think we were a lot more results-based back then. We had sort of less conception of the long run and overall ranges and et cetera, et cetera. So I completely understand his fold. At the time, I was quite surprised, I have to say. Like, I was trying to get a weakish ace to fold or something so, something of that nature. And actually, I did kind of have the impression of him, which turned out to be false. Um, as I said, we didn't know each other's games very well, but I did have the impression he was a calling station because I had seen him make some light call downs previously as well. And obviously, he, you know, he, he had called off that ace queen for, two, for 200 big blinds online or whatever it was against me. So I did kind of think he was kind of stationary. Um, but I still obviously decided I was going for it in this spot. Would you have jammed with jacks or maybe some different sizing? Yeah, I would have jammed quite wide for value here, actually, based on my impression of him as, as stationary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my value range would actually have probably been wider than it should be, which then, of course, means that I should be bluffing more. I certainly wasn't thinking in those terms. I was, I was very much like, I have king high. <laughs> There's only one way I can win the spot now, and that's to put all the chips in. And this is a guy who thinks I'm an absolute net. So let's do that. Well, I think this is a perfect hand for the grid, not only because I said it had to be a big pot at first lap and for you to come on, <laughs> but uh, also because King X suited actually makes a lot of appearances in your books, um, particularly the new one, as an underrated hand that's surprisingly powerful in ICM spots. This is also applicable to some of the, the um, spots you write about in your satellite book. So yeah, how has playing King X suited image changed and improved so much in recent years? Yeah, I think the first solvers to become ICM aware were the preflop solvers, and you were just looking at calling ranges. Um, you know, somebody shoves 20 big bands on the bottom, what do we call it? And there weren't too many surprises there. That was the kind of thing we could have worked out from first principles anyway. But once the solvers became post-flop aware, and then you were able to sort of bleed that back to preflop, well, certain types of hands just do very badly post-flop in ICM extreme situations. And other hands suddenly do better. And, you know, the, the classic one is that when ICM is, is extreme post-flop, there are spots where, let's say, uh, the, the board comes king, seven, five, rainbow, and you're the covered player, and you have a medium stack, and you're playing against the chip leader. If he starts applying pressure, you're in a very bad spot with a hand like king, queen. And the post-flop solvers will actually advocate that you dump that hand at an early stage rather than set up a situation where he can just go bet, bet, and then shove river, and now you have to fold everything. But in that spot on king, seven, five, we can continue with, say, a hand like ace, five, backdoor flush draw, because that will sometimes make a strong enough hand by the river that if he's going that line, bet, bet, shove, we'll sometimes be able to call the river, which is never the case with king, queen. 
So essentially what happens when ICM is a factor is relatively shallow stacked spots play more like deep stack spots. And the strategy becomes very similar. And in deep stack spots, you know, king suited kings make very good hands because uh, they give us board coverage. They can make the knots a lot, or at least some of the time. And you know, they play better than say ace nine off, ace ten off, those types of hands. They can make strong enough hands that we can play a really big pot. And the same is true in ICM. They can make strong enough hands that if if the chip leader is uh, trying to abuse us by going bet bet shove. We'll okay, we'll, we, we will get to the river often enough with a strong enough hand that we can call off, um, which won't be the case with a hand like king-queen off or king-jack off as, as, as often. So essentially what happens is the, the range becomes very more heavily weighted towards suited aces, which I guess would have been kind of obvious. It, you know, Everybody knows suited ace can make the nuts. But the suited kings are less obvious, I think, because you're not necessarily drawing to the nuts. But at the same time, it does go up in value. And the other thing is the blocker effect it becomes much more important, uh, both when you're deep stacked and when ICM is a thing. And, you know, the ace is the obvious blocker, but the king has roughly a quarter of the value of an ace as a blocker against strong ranges, you know, blocking ace king, blocking kings. So it works out roughly a quarter of an ace, let's say, as a blocker. And that makes it a useful hand to have post-flop as well um, in these ICM extreme situations. It's really quite interesting that you also picked this hand, which had such a great story to it, but then it has this direct link to your recent books. Well, your recent book and your earlier books as well. There is a famous quote from the Cuban world chess champion, Jose Raul Capablanca, that in order to improve your game, you must study the end game before everything else. And your book has end game in the title, but I do feel like that phrase is not always used in poker, not in the same way that it is in chess. Um, do you think there's a corollary there? Yeah, very much so. And this is something which sort of runs, it's a theme which runs through our books. Like when we were talking about how to write the first book, the satellite book, I had already done a sort of a satellite webinar where I just took the traditional approach of here's what you do at the start of a satellite. Here's what you typically do at the middle of a satellite strategically. And here's what you do at the end. But when it came to writing the book and I had discussions with Barry, one of the things we focused on was that often people don't read the full way through a book. I have 200 poker books on my uh, cabinet behind, and I probably only got to the end of five of them. So we thought, okay, well, people might bail on this book at some point, and we want them to have got the most important stuff out of the book at that point. So in satellites, by far the most important stuff is the stuff at the end, how you play bubbles and near bubbles. So we started with that and we worked backwards, um, which, as you said, is, is kind of a thing in chess as well. When I was playing chess seriously, I put a lot of study into end games because it improves your results a lot. Like if you can successfully defend a slightly inferior position in the end game and get a draw, that's pretty big. If you can convert all of your winning positions into wins in the end game, that's also pretty big. And I think there's a similar thing in, po- in poker as well, where most of the high equity decisions are at the end of a tournament. Yet people often focus their study on sort of early, early spots where they're facing a check raise on the river and they have to decide whether to call or not. And the only time tournament players have 100 big blinds or more is typically at the start of a tournament. And if you become really good with that stack size and you study lots and lots of sims and you're not considering ICM because it's early in the tournament, you know you might improve your win rate by two or three big blinds per 100, but that's only going to add a couple of percent to your ROI long-term. You get a spot wrong late on in a tournament. You could be torching 20, 30, 40 buy-ins. That's absolutely massive. So when it came to deciding what we were going to write the next book on, 
a lot of people have said to us, okay, you wrote a book on satellites and that's great. Get, that gets us into tournaments. You wrote a book on PKOs, which are the popular format. How about you write a book on how to play normal tournaments? And we were like, well, that's not a book. That's an encyclopedia of books. Um, that is such a vast area. How do you, where do you even start? Definitely the thing in my mind that makes the biggest difference and the people do the worst is ICM, essentially how you play the end of tournaments. So we had this idea from the start that, okay, it's going to be an ICM book. And essentially ICM really only applies to tournaments in the end. So that's where the title came from, the idea of Endgame. As a former chess player, it was kind of, it was nice for me to be able to use that phrase in a, in a poker context. And even poker players who don't know anything about chess and don't know that Endgame is a chess term. I mean, they understand what we're talking about. They understand we're, we're talking about sort of the end of tournaments when bubbles or ladders are a factor. Actually, my favorite title that was suggested to us was Bubbles and Ladders. The only reason we turned that down was because the average person is going to know what that's about. They're not going to realize that it's a poker book even. I love it, though. I love it, but I get it. I, I get it because you guys are self-published. You know, I read some great interviews with Barry talking about how the publishing industry works in Amazon and how SEO is really important. So. It totally makes sense. But Bubbles and Ladders, man, that is fantastic. Yeah, the same thing about all of our books, they all had titles which we much preferred. Like the, the title everybody wanted us to call the satellite book was Fold Everything. Great idea, too. We had a good mock-up cover for it. But again, like, you know, you put that up and that's not going to get people to buy the book. As you said, like we're self-published, so we have to push all this stuff ourselves. And I know from talking to friends who write, who have written self-published books, how difficult that is vast majority of self-published poker books just disappear without a trace. They sell 10 copies and then they're done. And we definitely didn't want that happening. I wasn't as pushed on the sales as Barry because, you know, I'm a professional poker player and this is sort of a sideline for me. And I do it because I enjoy the work, but Barry's a professional writer. So, you know, he can't give up the amount of time that he gives up to each book and have it sell 10 copies. So we were sort of focused on, on that stuff. And also the early promotion. The early promotion is really important. If your book doesn't start strongly, Amazon just decides, right, this book is done um, and it won't suggest it to people. A friend of mine who wrote a book told me that even when you enter the exact title of her book and her name on Amazon in the search engine and click search, it doesn't show up. It suggests other books. That's so annoying. Who is it? I got to give the person some love and Arvad. <laughs> yeah, that is so horrible when that happens, because that literally means your book has no chance. Like unless you send them a specific link and saying, here's the link that you really want to buy the book, that book is never going to be discovered. People will buy books in that area, but it'll never be suggested to them. Even if they search for books in that area, it'll never pop up. So a lot of our strategy around the promotion has been just get the early stuff right, make sure that that Amazon recognizes it as a book that will sell long term. So it's been very refreshing because, you know, we're already at the stage where, and I did test this, if you start typing endgame poker strategy, by the time you get to endgame PO, we're the first thing that it's suggesting. If you type the ICM book, we're the, we're the first thing that it suggests as well. So that's very important because if people are searching for that sort of stuff, you know, if somebody puts in, I want to book an ICM, the ICM book, we want our book to pop up first. It's kind of annoying in a sense because obviously you end up doing a lot of sort of just promotion work, but it's very important if you don't want your book to just sort of disappear. And like, once it's done, it's done. It's really important for sure. You know, you're doing the work of what a whole team would do. By the way, one other test connection in your book, every time I read Bo Bubble Factor, probably because of the, the capital B and the capital F and the R and the number of letters, I kept seeing Bobby Fisher. And I was like, every, every time I read it, I'm like, Bobby Fisher. 
It's funny how your brain has these like weird heuristics, right? People who are very good readers, you know, you can put typos into books and very good readers won't spot them because we just see all the words and we immediately assemble them into what makes sense to us. I would like to thank everybody who helps us on this book because we're self-published. We, we do rely on people to sort of like step forward and agree to proofread and stuff. And it's really heartening to um, the number of people who are prepared to give their time for this stuff. I do give them acknowledgements in the back of the book, but uh, I would like to say like, it's amazing. Like it basically takes a village to, um, to, uh, to, to help two village idiots write a poker book. And this sort of bore this out. Like we sent this book out to so many proofreaders and also content experts, and they all came back with great suggestions. And then other people, you know, have bought the book and they immediately leave reviews on Amazon. And that we know from past experience that that's vital. Even if your book is selling pretty well, if there are no reviews going up, Amazon kind of knows that, well, that's just his mates buying the book. The reviews really help as well. And we're very, very lucky. We've, we've gotten so much support from sort of people who are interested and people who have bought our previous books. And, uh, and I saw a lot of tweets by uh, Kat, you know, editing the book. And by the way, um, the bubble factor in MTT tournaments was something that I really liked in the book, even though it wasn't a super extensive part of your book. Most of it fo focused on like final table and ICM. Um, and I actually spotted in an interview with Barry that he wasn't sure that you should insert that section. I'm really glad that you did. You talked about some gorilla math that you sometimes use to determine how much your stack is worth at, for instance, a, the bubble of a very large tournament. So you don't know like how many chips people have necessarily, especially if it's uh, live or even online, if it's just too many tables to really um, keep track, track of. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you came up with it? That was quite important because like one of the things you understand when you, when you start studying ICM is that you always need more than the pot odds when ICM is a factor. But the question is how much more? And when there are not, not very many players left, you can, it's, it's relative. Well, it's not easy, but you can, you, you can sort of roughly work it out. But when there are lots and lots of players, like say it's the WSOP main event and you know, whatever number of people are getting paid, now it's not at all obvious. So in our previous books, we had, this, we had used this term gorilla maths. And the idea is it's simplified maths, which you can do at the table in your head. And actually, like even, you know, even for that example of WSP main event um, bubble, like even the supercomputers can't work out the ICM because it's too complicated. You know, the number of calculations grows exponentially. When you have six, when you have three players left, you have six possible outcomes uh, in terms of who wins, who comes second, and who comes first, third. When you have four players, it's, it's um, what is it, four by three by two, 24. It grows exponentially. By the time you're up to like 20, it's hundreds of millions. By the time you get to a thousand, it's a bigger number than the number of atoms in the universe. So it can never be calculated precisely, but you do need some rough method of calculating. And I had just been sort of using an estimation method, but then Kevin Martin, the, the great Twitcher, came to me once and, and, and asked me, like, how would I do this in game? Like, how would I work out what my bubble factor is? And I had a long discussion with him and I came up with this method and then I tested it using various ICM calculators and was surprised at how close it gets, it gets us to the actual ICM, at least in the spots that we can test. And given that it, it like works at five players left, 10 players left, 15 players left, there's no reason to believe that it's different at a thousand players left. So I think this is the closest you can get. And I think that's probably the one area where we sort of broke ground on this book. One of the reasons why we weren't sure whether we would include bubble factor or not is that this stuff was actually covered. And the term bubble factor was coined 13 or 14 years ago by Lee Nelson and, the, and all the guys who wrote Kill Everything, Kill Everyone rather. So that's all discussed in their book. And really, we're just sort of rehashing what they did. But at the same time, since our book is new and it's supposed to be a one-stop shop for ICM, 
in the end, we decided we're going to have to put that in there, even if we are essentially just replicating what they had done already. But where we went further, obviously, is we gave people this guerrilla maths method to work out. And then the post-flop section, this is the first time post-flop has ever been put under scrutiny with the post-flop solvers until the solvers like Pio and Munker became ICM aware we were always just guessing. And even the best players in the world, you know, they had ideas on how ICM affected things post-flop, but nothing could be tested. Now we are actually able to look at the solvers and see what's happened. And turns out a lot of what we thought was correct, but some of it wasn't. Those are the two areas, I think, where we break the most ground. And we would have liked to put a lot more into the post-flop section um, because there's a lot in there. But in the end, Barry decided and I agreed if we did that, the book would get far too big. And you know, half the book would be post-flop and maybe people would just be turned off by the sheer size of it. So we kind of have it in the back of our mind that at some point we will write another book focusing exclusively on ICM post-flop. But for this book, we sort of drill down on what we saw as the three or four most important concepts that keep coming up time and time again when you look at ICM simulations. And once you understand those concepts, you don't have to sort of know or or even look at a thousand different sims. You can just go like, well, this is an ICM spot, so this concept applies. Yeah, that was also another one of my favorite chapters of the book. One thing that was a thread through your book, which I find really interesting, is this quote that came on early on that losing hurts more than winning feels good. And it's not just a feeling, it's actually a reality when it comes to ICM. And it's a fundamental concept to ICM, to tournament poker, but also I think to life and risk taking, as there have been so many studies showing this aversion to losses. So it should come rather naturally to people. ICM is one of those concepts that it's actually, in a way, the case of what you earlier called like the old Ned or the amateur player, perhaps being closer to the correct strategy than the professionals were some years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And from what I remember, that uh, phrase, losing hearts more than winning feels good, came from Bobby Fischer or some chess player. Um, and it's very much the case, like we know as chess players how devastating a chess loss feels. And, you know, winning doesn't feel the reverse image is good. And you're right. This is, this is an area I was talking to a cash game player who's playing their first WSP at the moment. And in the course of a conversation, I did say this is an area where actually amateurs sort of just figure it out naturally. They, they do play bubbles very well because they kind of get the whole concept that if I just fold a few hands, I'm going to cash. And therefore, I should be very, very tight. And I think there might even be an example we used in the book where a guy in an EPT literally blinded down to several antes, and people at home were berating him, uh, saying like he, he needs to go for it. But he, even though this was his first live tournament, so he wasn't at all, you know, he, he put no study into this spot. He did intuitively work out and gain that like, well, what's the point in doubling up when our stack is so short? We just have to try and maximize our chance of getting into the tournament, of, of getting into the money. I think amateurs understand that very well. So that's why one of the reasons why we didn't focus so much on how you play actual bubbles, because I think it is an area where people kind of intuitively get. I think what people don't get is sort of the ICM of late on. There's a lot of uh, counterintuitive stuff there. And we focused on what we called the fallacies. One of them is that like the more top heavy a structure is, the more extreme the ICM. And that's absolutely not the case. The flatter the structure is, the more extreme the ICM. It kind of depends on the next pay jump somehow. That if the next pay jump is, is small, then your ICM isn't big at all. But the reality is, again, that de- deep in a tournament, ICM is at its most extreme on the final table bubble. And then once you get to the final table, it's at its most extreme when there are nine players left. And every time somebody gets eliminated, it becomes less and less of a factor. 
Now that runs counter to what a lot of people think because they look at the pay jump between ninth and eighth and say, well, that's small. So I'm not going to worry about ICM. I should just, in inverted commas, play for the win, which is not at all correct. So in our book, we did focus on that stuff because we thought, okay, even amateurs play bubbles pretty well. They understand that they have to tighten up when they're when they're short. They may not understand how much they have to tighten up. So we'll give them this, the whole gorilla maths calculation, but they still do get the basic concept. But where they go wrong is later on, where they think they have to play for the win when there are 10 players left and maybe they tighten up too much when it gets shorthanded then. Yeah, that was kind of where we came at it on that stuff. One very controversial part in your book is where you write, my criteria for swapping when we are at the final few tables is how much a player understands ICM and thus how tight they should be playing. I won't do swaps with lag players. I'd rather do a 5% swap with someone who cut their teeth in the 180 man, SNGs and poker stars over Phil Ivey late on in a big tournament. So Phil Ivey texts you and asks you to swap 5% late in an yeah, event. This is, this is never actually going to be an issue, obviously. I'm calling that. I'm calling that love. I think in the first draft, I used the name of a very well-known Irish player who plays primarily live. And then we decided, okay, that might be insulting. So <laughs> let's just pick a ridiculous example. But the the point stands, like I would, I would genuinely prefer to swap with somebody that I know understands ICM. And when I say understands ICM, I don't mean that, they, that they're just going to play like a knit. I also mean that they'll know how to play when they have a big stack, when they're chip leader, how much they should be widening their ranges, how they can apply pressure, all that stuff. And also they'll know how to play as a medium stack you know, that they can apply pressure on, on shorter stacks, but they have to be careful against bigger stacks and how they play as a short stack. Again, talking about the misconceptions around ICM, one of the misconceptions very much so is that when you have a short stack, you just have to sort of go for it. You gamble because there's no ICM. And I think when people do ICM calculations on how much a short stack is actually worth, they're always surprised. Like you might be the shortest stack on a final table where the next prize is a thousand and eighth place is 2,000. And most people will think, okay, the short stack stack is worth about 1,200. And then you do the calculation and it actually turns out it's worth 2,400. So people don't sort of get how, even with the short stack, you have to call off pretty tightly and you're looking for more spots where you can get it in first. So that's kind of what I meant by that. Even very good players, you know, you see them, you, you see them making horrendous ICM punts. One ICM punt in equity terms is... 200 well-played hands where they where they eke out an extra big blind because of their masterful post-flop play. Obviously, it's a slightly provocative statement, but there's more than a grain of truth there. I have happily swapped in the main event, for example, with young guys playing their first ever live tournament. And a lot of people won't do that. They'll say, well, like he has no live experience. But I think, you know, this guy's played 50,000 tournaments online. He's proven over the long term that he's a winner. Poker is poker. If this guy goes deep, I think he's going to play very. He's, he's going to play very well, and he's going to know how to play all of the different situations. He's going to know how to play eighteen left, fifteen left, twelve left, and all through the final table. Whereas if it's a live player, and again, I think the original example we used, who is you know genuinely a live crusher, but when you look at their record, you find that they've only made something like twenty final tables lifetime. So like that's not really a lot of practice of um, of playing final tables. And even if their record is very good, like who knows over that sample size, maybe they just ran insanely well. I'd much rather look at a guy who has 2,000 final tables online and, and has done well. Um, it seems like a more meaningful sample size. Well, if, if you see Phil Ivey reading Endgame strategy book on, on his private jet, sending you all a text to swap. <laughs> yeah. And the WSOP made. 
obviously I would snap Phil's arm off if he has it, if he somehow has a stroke and decides he wants to swap with me. <laughs> it's funny, like, I didn't even realize Phil Ivey was the example that we use in the end of the book. I, all, all I remember about that discussion is I had that discussion with um, Barry and he found it very striking. So he said, okay, I'm going to put that in the book. And then he sent me the first draft and I was like, Okay, maybe take that guy's name out because it sounds it sounds like I'm insulting uh, somebody who has a much better live record than I have, and I'm 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 turning up my nose at a swap with them. So you know, just pick somebody else. So I didn't realize he picked the live. Oh, maybe me. You know, I have an advanced copy of the book. Jeez, I should check to make sure it's in the uh, <laughs> it's in the actual live one. <laughs> yeah, there is another section in the book where I compare my lifetime graph online to another player who has won roughly the same amount as me, um, but they have a very different style and. The purpose there was to show that, like, even though we end up at the same profit, we get there in very different ways. He has massive downswings and much bigger highs, whereas my graph is more of, of a straight line up. I didn't want to name that player because people are private about their graphs. And like, it's, it's in no way a criticism of that player because at the end of the day, he, he, he got to the same profit as I did. But we kind of wanted to make the point that if you want a sort of a smooth stress-free life. And this is something that Lappin used to say to me a lot back in the day too, that like our approach to poker, it's just going to work most of the time and we're not going to have the same massive volatile swings and we're not going to have the stress of dealing with a 200k downswing. And that's sort of something which is important too. Let's say you're ignoring the precepts of ICM and you're always in inverted commas playing for the win. You probably will end up with a few more wins over the long term. And that's nice, but you're going to have some vicious swings and um, that's not so nice. Yeah, we were just trying to basically say that like taking a low variance approach to poker and, and life in general has a lot to recommend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you also have a good financial argument for that as well, because you say that, uh, you know, you don't have to borrow as much money or get as much stake. So if you're profitable, you're, you're actually you're actually literally making more money, even if you make the same amount of money, which is I think that has a lot of corollaries, I think, with uh, financial success as well. So I found it quite interesting. Now, in addition to being um, really good at poker and writing, you're also an ultra marathoner. It looks, it sounds like you do a lot of good podcast listening on your runs because I hear about that and you probably think about poker a lot. Is it hard to sit for so long and play long MTG sessions as somebody who's used to like running for so many hours? Do you ever want to just like jump out of your seat, start like running around the tournament hall in circles like David Lappin did when he folded the tens incorrectly to you? I think the running actually helps um, me sit longer and put in longer sessions because at the start of my poker career, I was still uh, competitive in ultras. Um, I was still representing Ireland and showing up at the world championships, etc. But I very quickly found I couldn't really balance the two because the, the training for competitive ultra running is just so harsh. So my ultra running sort of tapered off over the years. But at the start of my career, I felt one of my massive edges was I was able to play very long sessions without getting tired. When we were playing live towards the end of the day, other players were getting tired and I was sort of powering through. And I felt that that came from the fitness that I had from the ultra running. As I ran less and less, uh, there was a period in the middle of my career, say around 2013, where I actually felt that stuff was starting to disappear. And obviously age is a factor. Um, I'm not a young guy, but I also thought the fact that I'm not training as much is also a factor. So I kind of went back to, okay, I'm going to run more. I'm never going to run as much as I used to when I was running competitively, but I can still run 80 miles a week. Uh, so I kind of geared back up to that. And, and, and the way I structured it was, was similar to when I was an ultra runner. I had one long run per week, which depending on the time of year is anything from 25 to 40 miles. And then I have days where I just run six miles 
And then I have a couple of days a week where I do faster sessions. And I very quickly felt that that massively improved my concentration and my performance at the poker table. You know, I, I had a sort of a latish career renaissance starting around 2015. And I think the poker, oh, sorry, the running was instrumental in that. I also feel it's a good balance. Like if if I'm playing online a lot and the running sort of falls by the wayside, I find myself just sort of getting more stressed. And whereas when I go running, it's almost like a reset, um, particularly the long run. The long run gener- generally feels like a reset. No matter how much the poker has gone, how badly the poker has gone in the previous week, it's like, okay, well, now the, the I do a long run, every, everything is reset. And when I'm on my long runs, that's when I do listen to podcasts and I think about poker in general. So it just feels like a sort of a de-stress as well. I guess it's my form of meditation almost. Amazing, because you made running sound appealing to me, which is very difficult. I was the slowest kid in my class uh, when it came to running sprints. But uh, when we ran the really long stuff, suddenly I was like doing a lot better. Yeah, and you got to find out what you love. Speaking of love, you said that your third favorite game, which doesn't sound that high, actually, but I guess poker and bridge are the ones that you ranked above it, is chess. And you actually played in a chess tournament before we became friends at the EPT Dublin, where I arranged a chess and poker combined event. I used to be an over-the-board chess player, so you did pretty well against the pure poker players. Um, But in a blog about that, you wrote that it was a real eye-opener to see how many of the chess grandmasters are absolute fish at poker, showing that being good at the ultimate mental game like chess does not always transfer to something like poker as, as much as you would expect. Yeah, I do remember being surprised by that because the, the chess part was first. And it was quite funny because I was obviously way better than the poker players at chess because even 25 years out of date or whatever, I still sort of understood the basic principles of chess. But when it came to playing the proper chess players, I was just terrible. I was as bad. I must have looked as bad to them as any of the other poker players. Um, they were just way better than me. So I was kind of in the middle. But then when it came to the poker, I thought these guys were all going to be great as well. And I, I was friends with Almira Skripchenko at the time. And Almira is a good poker player. So I thought, well, they're all going to be good. They're all going to be good like her. And, and they, they really weren't. They were just terrible. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like these really smart people and they can just be terrible at this other game. Um, but I mean, I guess it's just like they hadn't put in enough uh, study or work into it. Magnus, on the other hand, who I think occasionally does a poker tournament with Univet. He is quite strong at both games. So yeah. he would be my pick for winning, shockingly, if we had that on like a, a large grand scale, as well as Grisha, of course, Grisha and Magnus. Yeah, Magnus feels like a guy who's just good at everything. I know. Is he annoying? Yeah, comedy too. He's actually really funny as well. So yeah. It's quite irritating. Like, we got to find something that this guy's bad at. Probably bad at ultra marathon running. I can't imagine yeah. Magnus running for the amount of hours that you run. No way. <laughs> I'm really happy that we finally had time to get you on the grid, Dara. It was fantastic. You filled up the cell, King Six suited against your friend, your co host, my nemesis, my frenemy. Um, David Lappin, um, the co-host of The Chip Race, and that's where you can catch Dara. And of course, you can find him on Dara O'Carney on Twitter. You can find his books um, on Amazon. Um, So congratulations on those releases, and thank you so much for joining The Grid. Thanks very much, Jennifer. Absolute delight. Dara O'Carney, King Six Suited. 
Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.